So like my parents both did really, really well at sport, but both of them had sport taken away from them. And I think that's been like one of my biggest inspirations is like, I have this opportunity, so I need to pursue it. Um, and they've been really, really supportive in that. But yeah, I think part of me is like, just because you can doesn't mean you have to, but at the same time, I have this opportunity, so I need to take it. And this is the one that I love. This is what, this is the one thing that I absolutely love. So I want to make the most of it. That was Team GB windsurfer Sarah Jackson. I am Curtis Mansfield, and this is the Hips It Is podcast. A previous guest of mine described today's guest as as crazy as a box of frogs. But more of that to come. Firstly, I want to announce our new podcast sponsor, Aerofit. Check them out to see how their products are helping to improve people's aerobic capacity more info to come on that in the next couple of weeks but basically i've got my hands on some of the products i'm really excited to try them out and i'm hoping that i will see tangible benefits in my aerobic capacity and therefore benefits when it comes to my triathlons later this summer sarah jackson is a british windsurfer who represented team gb in slalom and freestyle at the World Champs for under-17s, 19s and 21s, as well as the senior women's categories. A two-times university champion in 2018 and 2020, Sarah has been linked continuously with the Olympic training squad for the Paris 2024 Olympics. So women with a lot of potential, and I'm looking to see really what motivates her in the, in the coming years. Check out the social media, which is at hips underscore and underscore dips for details of all of my guests from this series, including Sarah. It's now time to go and open up that box and catch up with windsurfer, bath student and amazing woman is Sarah Jackson. Okay, so I am here with Sarah Jackson. Uh, windsurfer extraordinaire. Sarah, how are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm not bad. It's not bad. It's um, it's once again, it's interesting because this interview won't go out for a little while. So we're currently here in uh, reasonably cold, um, windy by my standards, but I hear it's not too windy down where you are, but uh, slightly strange climate. Whereas hopefully by the time this interview goes out live, there'll be people in pubs again and it'll be sunny and perhaps a very different climate to how it is now yeah like last weekend we had it was it like went sunny again and that was like the glimmer of hope that I've been like praying for all winter and we had even had like some sessions on the water where it was sunny and kind of warm like I'd say like 10 degrees warm which by my standards is warm and it made such a difference um, and then this week it's gone grey again and it's cold. I've got like wind from the north. It's not that windy. And like already I've just felt like my mood's just dropped again. So hopefully by the time this goes out, we'll be back in the sunshine and it'll be windy and sunny and happy days. Yeah, I did the classic uh, British male stereotype of wearing shorts. As soon as it got above 10 degrees, I was in shorts and a t-shirt. Um, threw, oh, away, threw away all my trousers threw away all the coats, didn't need them anymore, but only lasted that day, but it was a, it was a great day. 
Right. So you're one of my um, my first guests I've had is actually a regular podcast listener and uh, a listener of Hips and Dips. So uh, what have you thought of it so far? I really enjoy it. I think that it's so cool to like open up the conversation with athletes because um, I think like there's a different level. Like I listen a lot to the high performance pod, which is with Jake Humphreys. And I think that's really interesting to kind of unpick some of the like top, top level elite athletes that everyone's heard of. But I think you do a really good job of kind of bringing, like giving the light to some of the athletes that maybe wouldn't normally be in like the mainstream media. Um, and I find it just really interesting to hear everyone's stories because um, everyone's got a different story. And I think everyone comes through in a different way. And like every sport's so different. So I just, I'm a massive sports nerd. So I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And it is interesting actually, because it, it's like we only in this, in this country, in the media, we only really examine the very tip of the iceberg when it comes to sports people. And it's like almost on a daily basis, the same names churn up, whether that be in social media or on actual news channels or in documentaries, it's always like, you know, Djokovic, Nadal, Usain Bolt, David Beckham, there are certain names that are just synonymous with sport. But then there's so many people who are like maybe the fifth best runner in the world and no one really cares about them or the, you know, they're in the 10th best football team or whatever. No one particularly really cares. So it's, it's interesting how yeah, we only examine the very top of elite sport. And there's a lot of really interesting people out there with, uh, with great stories and maybe, maybe you'll be one of them. You're actually uh, an- another fellow Bath graduate um, to join. Uh, who have you had so far? We've had Sarah, Adam, uh, two Sarahs actually. So yeah, another fellow team Bath graduate, which is nice to uh, nice to see. Uh, right, so let's crack on. I think with the with the sort of big questions really. So first of all, it's the same question I ask everyone every week, which is how has this pandemic affected your health? And as always. I'm interested from a mental, physical, and of course, social point of view. It feels like it's been going on for a really long time now. Um, If we kind of go back like a year, so like it's March now, I went into quarantine, like I went into isolation as such, um, pretty much to the day today. So it's like the first week of March, um, because I got a concussion and I remember it because I was at uni and it was the end of elections week which is this week um and I just about made it to the end of elections week and then I pretty much slept for two weeks um so like I went up home I was just really unwell and like the doctors didn't know what was wrong with me so I ended up just basically being in bed for two weeks while we kind of worked out what was wrong with me um and it turns out that I'd been living with concussion for six weeks um and just not really knowing just thinking that I was like really tired and kind of had ear infections and things going on Um, so yeah, I then, so I did like the two weeks at home, then we went into lockdown and then just before we went into lockdown, I, and we needed to like get granny out of home because of how everything works. Like my mum works in the NHS and my brother's a teacher. So to have granny living with us at home just wasn't going to work. So I drove granny down to go and live with my cousins in Devon. So I spent isolation in like right on the beach in Devon. It was awesome. It was so, like, as lockdowns go, it was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I don't really remember any of it. I was concussed for most of it. (laughs) Um, But, like, and, like, I'd go dizzy before I got to the end of the driveway. So, like, didn't really do anything. 
but to be in the sunshine by the sea was like really really nice and that kind of saved my mental health I think um and then when we came out of lockdown I had a degree to do so I was in my final year at uni so I kind of did my degree and then pretty much as soon as we came out of that we went back into another lockdown um but by then I'd moved to the south coast so the second lockdown for me was like very different because I could still train like I now live 100 meters from the sea so even though like we couldn't go into gyms we can't do anything my training ground is the beach so as long as beaches are open and we're allowed on the water then like it's all right and like October November is the windiest months of the year mm-hmm. so actually like by the time I'd been on the water all day and I'd like see my training partners then I didn't really mind that we were in lockdown and then I think this third lockdown has been much harder and that's where I've really like my mental health struggled and like the only thing that's really kept me going is like focusing on like the physical health and just trying to get as fit as possible because it's cold it's dark it's like you wake up it's dark you go to bed it's dark like you finish your work day and it's dark um and like there's just not enough hours for training and working so I found that really difficult um and like yeah so this one, and th- I feel like this one, there's been less people out on the beaches. You see the same three, four people and that's it. And which I know I'm really lucky that I get to see those people, but like living on my own has been really tricky. And like, I think it's got to the point now where I worked out that like, I've seen my best friend three times in the last year. And that's been really tough because we've both gone through some like quite tough patches. So like not being able to see your closest friends is actually like really, really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, it's something which so many of us have been through. It's something which I noticed the other day, actually, because I've got some friends out there who have had sort of birthday events, um, obviously like within their households, but some of them obviously live with other people their age. So whereas my lockdown has been very family based, I live with my parents at the moment. So all I'm seeing is my parents and my work colleagues if you happen to live in a house with six other blokes in their twenties, and I suppose you could, you have a slightly different lockdown experience, perhaps it's like being almost like a student again, like living in like a freshers halls. Um, so I suppose everyone's experience is unique, of course. Uh, what's, what was it like being an actual student during your final year of exams? I spoke to someone actually who was a, who was a fresher um, throughout this year, but what's it like to be a final year student when you can't go to university? So for us, it was kind of like, I say us, like my two housemates that I lived with, um, we were, well, four, three of us, we all kind of went into lockdown, not really knowing what was going on. And like, I, so I hadn't started any of my final semester modules and I was also meant to be splitting my final year. So I knew that I didn't have a dissertation to do at that point. I just had modules to get done. And my bigger issue was more about like, the concussion than anything that was going on with COVID um, because I couldn't read. Like I couldn't read. That was kind of one of the things that flagged up that I might have concussion was like, I went, I remember being like that last week that I was at uni, I went to go and try to read like an academic paper. And I read the first paragraph five times and I had no idea what was going on. And it was a fairly basic paper. 
and yeah. I just couldn't take anything in I couldn't read like I got a massive headache and then went and had a two-hour nap which is quite studenty of me but like to work for 15 minutes and then need to sleep for two hours was quite extreme <laughs> um so yeah the uni were amazing with me like we just like the minute we worked out what was going on so once I got diagnosed they were like you need to just go on bed rest for a month um so no screens no anything that strains my brain basically sit in a dark room for a month um and that took me to kind of when most of my assignments should have been being handed in and I hadn't even started the reading so the uni were amazing they just put everything back and they were like we can push you into like this is the deadline to graduate with your cohort this is the extended deadline this is when you'll graduate like this is the deadline if you want to graduate in October this is the deadline if you want to graduate in January like they were just like there's no pressure you were already meant to split so it doesn't matter which modules we split and if we put your entire second semester into next year it doesn't matter just get yourself right and like yeah my director of studies and my lecturers were amazing with me um but yeah thanks to covid i just got everything done um because we could push everything back and like all the deadlines were changed so yeah covid did kind of help a little bit um but yeah we've we were talking about it with my friends recently is that we almost found that that final year yeah we missed everything like I won some awards at Blues, we missed that. One of my friends was meant to host the SU Awards, we missed that. We missed the final lecture, we missed so many things. But it was still an adventure back then. So kind of we thought it was quite exciting in a way. Like you didn't really know what COVID was back in like March, April time. So although we missed everything, it was all right. Whereas the guys that are going through final year now, they didn't get the fun placement year. They didn't get the middle summer. They still aren't getting a final year. Whereas we got three quarters of the final year. So, and then we got our heads down and got the work done. So it kind of helped. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I can talk from experience. My final semester of uni wasn't exactly um, the big party time anyway. So it was very uh, high stress, a lot of spending time in libraries. So it's probably not too dissimilar, but, but no, I think it was certainly a shame you missed out on Certain elements of that final year. I did see in the news the other day actually that I think Bath was named top ten sports universities in the world. I think I saw that, which is quite a good achievement, and that probably uh, links into what you're saying about how they were very accommodating of you, both from a sports point of view, but also when it came to injuries and and so that's that's obviously probably a good testament to what they're doing over there in Bath still. And what I really yeah, want to do is I really want to talk about crazy. I really want to talk about the concussion in detail, and we'll talk about it a little bit later on. Because I think it's really interesting how they're very they're varying degrees of concussion, and maybe even the term concussion perhaps might be overly used in modern modern times. So I think that'd be a really great conversation. But we'll get to that later on. For now, we're going to take a little change of track, and we're going to go into our little ice breaking game. And uh, as always, it's inspired by either my guest sport or their name, some of like that. So with um. Tom Squires, we played, oh, what was it again? I think it was it cloudy with a chance of rain, I think we played, which was obviously able to sort of weather yeah. conditions. Um, but that feels like ages ago now I did that one. Uh, but this week, um, I was looking at your surname. I'll go into something to do with sort of Percy Jackson, the lightning thief, thinking Sarah Jackson and the wind thief, something like that. 
Well, that was rubbish. So I piled that to one side. Instead, I've gone with one of my favorite names of the series, which is the Jackson Five. And what I want you to do is I'm going to give you 10 seconds to name five things in a certain category. Uh, so if okay. I were to say to you, like, um, uh, five chefs, you could say Gordon Ramsay, Heston Blumenthal, and so on until you name five. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay. Let me get the old timer up. Uh, oh God. Where's the timer? Here it is. Okay. No, wrong one. Hold on. Stopwatch. Reset. Ready. Okay. Round number one. 10 seconds to name me five animals. Dog, cat, bird, horse, zebra, lion. Very, very good. That was six. So technically it's wrong, but we'll go um, with that. I'm dyslexic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was doing this earlier on, actually. I could name him four. And I think your mind plays tricks with you once you go beyond three. But uh, that's fine. Um, okay, next round, uh, five countries. Uh, Iceland, England, Portugal, Sri Lanka, Spain. Very good. Five foods. Uh, chicken, chips, pizza, bananas, strawberries. All the uh, all the healthy stuff there. Elite, elite <laughs> athlete and all that. <laughs> uh, five brands. All the things of... I'm dreaming of. <laughs> five <laughs> brands of beer. Uh, Corona, Budweiser, Heineken, Polar, and Amstel. Oh. Good. 9.99 that was fantastic right um right let's see a few more then uh five sports brands um nike adidas fanatic duotone ion very good um five chocolate bars <laughs> do you want the five that are under my desk <laughs> uh, sure <laughs> Whisper Crunchy, uh, Twirl, Cadbury's Dairy Milk, and Dairy Milk Caramel. Oh, that was that was twelve seconds. So you'll take a point off for that one. And then finally, uh, let's actually two more. Let's go with five colours: um, blue, purple, red, yellow, green, orange. Yep, good. And then. That was six, I think. It was six, but I was going to let you off this time, but you, you brought it up. <laughs> uh, finally, five breeds of dog. Spaniel, um, cock, uh, Labrador, Golden Retriever, Westie, Terrier. Yeah, we'll take that. Fine. Good. So I think that was... Uh, how many did we do? I lost track again. I think, yeah, I think we'll call it seven out of eight. That sound reasonable? Nice. We'll go I'll with take that. that. Seven out of eight. Very good. Right. So that was uh, this week's game, the Jackson Five. <laughs> Probably a better name than game, but I'm only here to do the names, really. The games are relevant as far as I'm concerned. Uh, right. So on to the bigger questions. Uh, how, how did you first get involved in windsurfing? Um, most people turn around and be like, my dad got me in or like my mum windsurfed or my brother did. Um, None of my family windsurfed, which is kind of like 
really different in my sport, I think. Um, I was stood on a beach on holiday when I was seven years old and I saw someone windsurfing was like, I want to do that. Um, my parents were like, no, no, no. Like you and your brother, you should go dinghy sailing. Like that's what, that's what we're doing today. And I was like, no, nah, I want to do that. That looks so much more fun. That looks so much cooler. And I basically threw a strop until my parents let me go windsurfing. And then they went and asked the center and they were like, no, you're too young. And I just kind of threw a bit of a strop and was like, but I want to do it. So eventually they let me do it. And then I was better than my brother. And my brother's two years older than me. He's like a real like natural athlete, which I just wasn't. So like I finally found a sport that I was better than him at. And I think that in itself was enough that I was like really happy about it. Um, and then I came home from that holiday. We did another couple of holidays kind of focused around water sports. Um, and I did lots more. And then I joined a local club, which was called like Team Asprey. Um, it was 20 minutes. It was a tiny little puddle, like really near where I lived at home. Um, and I joined that and that was like one of the main clubs involved in like the racing scene at the time. Like they were like five times national champions. And it was just a coincidence that was my local club. So like they pushed me down the racing scene and then I pretty much was just like straight into like the Olympic pathway, like the junior Olympic pathway um, and racing. And I followed that all the way through until I was like 15. And yeah. And then I stopped and I pretty much quit windsurfing for two years. <laughs> okay. Um, so, well, uh, so there's a few, a few quick things there is, I remember, so I remember Tom speaking so much about how, well, I was surprised that a lot of windsurfers don't come from the sea. You'd imagine it'd be very sort of popular down in sort of Weymouth and um, Devon and Cornwall and so on. But he was saying so many people come from inland and these sort of lake places, which I suppose what you're alluding to. Um, and yeah, I, I suppose, like a really yeah. Good... No, no, carry Sorry, on. Sorry, there's a delay. Um, so yeah, there's a really, really good setup by like the junior Olympic setup is amazing. It's got loads of little clubs around the country and they run a program called Team 15. And like, that was the best way to grow up. You have like so much fun. You, you don't know that you're getting better at windsurfing. You're just having fun with your mates. And that for me was like so good. And I think so many people that have like made it to the top of whatever discipline, like loads of people know not racing, but they came from a racing background and like, that platform that we have is just so good so I think that's why so many people come from lakes is because that like there's very few of those clubs are based by the sea so even if you live by the sea you probably end up going to a lake to start with and then go back to the sea there's very few people actually start on the sea yeah which, which I suppose makes sense especially in terms of probably the added skill level of doing it so that at sea or um, perhaps with those sort of stronger winds and stuff like that um, and I suppose I suppose one thing which is um, potentially well, I mean, it's obviously it's a good sign in some ways, but perhaps something that could be emphasised more is how do you get people who try this sport on holiday to do it more regularly? Um, which I said, obviously, you you tried on holiday, Tom tried on holiday. I'm not quite sure what the statistics show. How many people do this sport as a one-off and then really enjoy it and then get into it more regularly, as opposed to those who had come from a long history of sailors or windsurfers 
and so on. I'm not sure how they go to a lot of sports. You go like, oh, you know, my dad played rugby or my mum played hockey or whatever, and you get into sport that way. But I suppose sports like surfing, skiing, um, sailing, uh, canoeing, sort of sports you do on holiday, getting people to then do them back in England or at least back in mainland England is potentially the, the issue some of these sports face. Yeah, so the last, I work in the industry now, so it's been a really interesting year, but we've never seen it grow like it has in the last year um, because everyone's been forced to stay at home. So like skiing, snowboarding, a lot of people windsurf, they only windsurf on holiday and they only windsurf two weeks a year. Um, and we've seen a massive surge in those people buying their kit and windsurfing back in the UK. So it's going to be really interesting to see like how many people stay windsurfing in the uk after this year because like loads of people have bought like that there's no equipment left on the second hand market it's mm. gone crazy and like all the brands are like struggling to source equipment it's just gone mental which has been awesome but yeah it's it's going to be an interesting one to see like how many people stick with it um because normally i'd say like there's a lot of people only do it on holiday but yeah, this year has been really different. Yeah, and perhaps, perhaps there's been a slight resurgence in water sports in general. I've seen um, there's been this this real craze in paddleboarding, which has come from nowhere, in my opinion. I'm not quite sure what happened, but overnight suddenly everyone loves a bit of paddleboarding. And when you go down to um, probably the nearest sort of seaside area to me would be Brighton down the south coast, and I was down there in the summer a few couple of times and you said loads of people out paddleboarding. Um, I saw lots of people probably in sort of kayaks, which you probably wouldn't really expect, like sea kayaks and the odd person doing windsurfing or sailing, um, sort of dinghy sailing and so on. So maybe there's a real resurgence in those water sports. Again, as you said, that's probably a big part of that is that people can't do it on holiday. So they're forced to do it back, back home. Yeah, I think like paddleboarding, especially like, we part of the brand that I work for we also sell paddle boards and there was a point last summer where we had 5,000 boards on order that we just couldn't source them so like we'd sold out all the stock across Europe and we still had 5,000 in the UK just our brand on back order um, so it's gone pretty mental um, but I think paddleboarding is just so accessible like you, as long as you understand a little bit about like the wind conditions in terms of knowing not to go out when the wind's blowing off the beach, then you don't really need to know much more than that. And whereas windsurfing is kind of quite technical and same with kite surfing and like the new sports like wing foiling, they're all quite technical um, and you kind of need lessons. Whereas paddleboarding, you maybe need like a half an hour, hour lesson to kind of understand when it's safe to go out. But other than that, there's no real like technique. Well, there is technique to it. People will hate me for saying that. But there's no real like technique to just getting out on the board and having fun. So it's been great to see like so many people getting involved in water sports and then how many people have carried it on over the winter when it's been cold. So it's, it's good. Yeah. And it's also quite good as well, because I think that these are sports which have that real internal motivation. So you do it because you enjoy doing it and there isn't, obviously there is at your level but the level we're talking about is people buying a paddleboard etc there isn't a there's not like a league table or there's not points or prizes it's just you enjoy doing it with yourself with your friends or your family so it's that kind of 
sport for enjoyment more than sport for success or sports for sort of measurable, tangible results and so on. Um, right anyway, I, w- I want to move on because I had obviously Tom Squires on a while back and um, he gave me, I think, quite a good lesson in the basics of windsurfing. And I came away from that interview pretty happy with what windsurfing was and what it entailed and the basics that I need to be able to watch the Olympics, etc. And I thought preparing for this interview that now I'll be an expert, so this would be, be a breeze. But I read your bio and it's using words like slalom and freestyle and all sorts, which Tom didn't cover. So just, just summarize perhaps the different types of windsurfing and perhaps what differs what you do to what people like Tom do. So Tom follows the Olympic pathway, which is quite like different to what I do. Um, so his is basically just racing. Um, their races are quite a lot longer than ours and they go around a similar course to like the, the sale, uh, the dinghies do. Um, so it's normally like upwind across the wind, like with the wind and across the wind in a box or just up and down. Um, what I do in slalom racing. So that's kind of like 20, I think they're normally like 20 to 40 minute races. Like they're quite endurance based. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do is a three to five minute race, flat out. Most people are going 25 to 35 miles an hour. Um, and you go across the wind, you turn around a mark, you go across the wind again, round another one, and you go around four marks and it's just a flat out drag race. The first, we normally go in heats of eight with no rules. So you can crash into people, kind of do what you like, as long as you don't sail dangerously. Like they will penalize you if you are intentionally crashing into people. But if you hit someone and it's not really intentional and they fall in, that's tough luck. Um, <laughs> so sound like, it sound makes like it a really, true really psychopath. <laughs> yeah. So we do get like some like T boning, like where like someone just comes straight into the side of someone else at the mark. And like you, there's some, if you, google it there's like it's called like pwa no rules there's some videos about it and like there's some funny clips of like guys trying to punch each other and like they never work like no one's really ever like hit each other properly but there's some funny arguments um and but it makes it actually more fair because we found that we spent half the time in the protest room um and not enough time racing so we kind of just govern our own racing now and we have people watching like if it's the same guy that keeps taking people out then generally and like you start by getting disqualified and then they just put financial fines in which we're not the most we're not the richest bunch so financial fines are pretty big thing to us Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like you'll get disqualified from a round if you do it again you'll get disqualified from the event if you're repeating it at like multiple events then you just get like financial sanctions so it's pretty tough um but yeah so that's slalom which is like really quick racing no rules it's really fun to watch then we have waves which is all about jumping and doing tricks off the waves and then riding the waves like surfing Mm -hmm. um and then you have freestyle which is like well it's more it's now more being done in waves but traditionally it's on like flat water and kind of like skateboarding where you like generate your own height and pop 
off the water and then just do crazy tricks. Um, okay. So, yeah. So I suppose very different from the flat out racing that you see in the Olympics. Um, so if, if the Olympics isn't your end goal, um, cause obviously I'm assuming it's just a racing you see in the Olympics, what, what sort of is the, the major targets for you in the sport? So the, the slalom, the uh, wave and the freestyle are, all have their own world tours called the Professional Windsurfers Association. So we have like the PWA World Tour um, and we just got our tour calendar for this year. We've got nine events. So at the end of the year, they crown a world champion. Mm-hmm. And that for me is like to be the top at that and win a PWA World Tour like be PWA world champion is the aim because I think as well like you get an Olympics once every four years um, but this you have to perform across nine events like uh, across the world in so many different conditions you've got to continue like be consistent to be the best Um, so instead of peaking at one event we have to peak at nine events from May till November it's a pretty tough schedule okay and could could you be a pwa champion across all three events could you be a waves freestyle and slalom at the same time there's a girl at the minute who's like the queen of windsurfing and she's got something like 17 world titles i think 12 of them are in freestyle She's like only lost one heat in the last 12 years and Mm -hmm. then four in slalom and one in waves. So like she's won everything. Yeah. The grand slam, I suppose. Okay. So, um, sorry. So the, you mentioned earlier that you were on the Olympic, uh, what's the term? Is it a short course? Long, long program. I think the term is Olympic long program. Uh, basically you're in the Olympic setup for a while before, as a junior and then I believe you also according to an article I read you're also in contention for the 2024 Olympics in Paris so what was your decision process in terms of not pursuing the Olympics as a as an end goal so the first time I stopped was I was 14 I was just going into like starting GCSEs and I originally come from Cheshire um, well-known coastal location um, especially East Cheshire, really, really good for windsurfing. Um, so it was taking me about six hours to get down to Weymouth, which is where the Olympic Academy is. Um, yeah. And I basically grew when I was 12, 13, and I haven't really grown anything since then. Um, so I was quite a big 13, 14 year old. So they pushed me to go, like, to move on from being on the junior kit, which is techno, to going on to the full senior kit at RSX which at 14 was a pretty big push and it's like a pretty big financial put like jump um, or it was at the time. And you kind of need to be on the water every weekend. And after school, some days um, I needed to be in Weymouth every other weekend and it just didn't work. I was going to school like two and a half days a week. I was constantly ill um, and I lived an hour from being able to train. So in the winter, it just, it was dark, couldn't train. Um, and other people lived much closer to the sea and I think one thing that's kind of always been a sticking point for me one guy and one girl get to go to the Olympics 
and I watched it happen in 2012 with the Finn sailors. Um, it's like most people have heard of Ben Ainsley, but have you heard of Ed Wright and Giles Scott? Probably not. But they I've heard, were I've heard of Scott. Second. I can put that there now. I remember yeah, so he's, Scott. <laughs> so Giles Scott went to 2016 and is going to 2020. There I we think. go. Okay. And he was on Ben's America's Cup boat for Team Ineos. Right. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so Giles came second at the Worlds in 2012. Ed came third. So you could be second in the world. You don't get to go to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And I think that was just psychologically, I couldn't deal with that. That and again, it's happened at 2016, 2020, like with the Dutch teams in windsurfing. The guys that have been selected for 2020, the two guys have won the last. So like the two guys in the Dutch team won the, I think the last three world championships, like they came first and second, but one of them can't go to the Olympics. And like, I get that it's the pinnacle of the sport and you only want the very, very best, but what, like you could be, because you're from a different country that maybe doesn't have so many people, you could get to go to the games. But if you're from a country where you have loads of really good people, you might not get to go, but other people that aren't as good as you will get to go. And I just, that, I couldn't deal with it. So kind of the combination of too much family pressure, wanting to pursue like the academic side and this like only one guy, one girl made me stop at 14. Um, And I just enjoyed windsurfing for a couple of years. And then I got back into it and started teaching and having fun. Someone said, hey, come slalom sailing. So I kind of did that for a bit. And then this going into 2024, they've changed the disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if Tom talked about it much, but like everything's changed. So he's lost his training partners. Everyone's stopped like the old program and gone forwards into a new program. So last winter in like end of 2019, they basically said to like all the top windsurfers in the country, no matter what discipline you were in, come, if you've done some foiling, come join us. Like we're gonna set up a whole new squad, whole new program. So I got into that. We went to Portugal for the winter, did a winter training and it was really cool. I really enjoyed it, but then I got concussion and that was what I got the concussion from. Um, okay. I'll talk more about that later, but yeah. So I then missed six months and I reevaluated a lot over the summer. Um, some stuff happened. I was kind of looking at where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do with the next few years. And I kind of came back to that whole thing of like, it's only one girl's going to get to go. And my best mate's going to Tokyo. And I can honestly say, hand on heart, I don't think I'll ever be better than her at what she does. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I know that I don't have the same drive in terms of like the aerobic fitness to do like the pumping that they have to do. And I'm fit in other ways and in other parts of windsurfing, I'm probably a better windsurfer than she is. But when it comes to like the stuff that they have to do for the games, it's just not, it's just not me. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's certainly understandable. I think that whole um, discussion is quite interesting actually about, how many people from each country go to the Olympics and it's something we've come up a few times actually on this podcast and it's something I've spoke about in conversation a few times but 
it does seem really weird you can only have one from each country when it comes to sailing and and windsurfing compared to other compared to other sports um it's something with boxing actually you can only have one boxer in each weight category from each country and i had a guest on a few weeks ago um called fraser clark who was like in the running in 2012 but obviously his training partner was anthony joshua who was obviously quite rightly the best fighter in britain then won the gold and is now the world champion but you think this guy could have won silver potentially if they're both there but you can only have one from each country and i don't know really what the answer is for that because you wouldn't want to turn on athletics and 100 meters and just see everyone from semi-finals onwards is just jamaican and american perhaps and then you go to cycling and it's all british cyclists and australian cyclists and maybe a few french cyclists and then you go to karate and everyone's japanese and so on obviously you want to have variety in each sport of course but equally it does seem a bit pointless when you think like yeah, said the world number two is sat at home watching or um the guy who wins the silver medal or the bronze medal was only ranked like 10th in the world. It does seem a little bit convoluted. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just been like hit home with like Kieran and Dorian, who are the Dutch guys. Um, it's like Dorian won in London and Rio um, and like won both of them before the medal race. I think like he was doing, he was like a really long way ahead. And then they've won the last, between Dorian and Kieran, they've won the last three world championships. Um, and it came down to like half a point or a point between them in their qualifying series. And so like these guys are both as good as each other. And the new guy, Kieran, is now going to Tokyo. But it just seems like such a shame that like someone who won the last two, it's kind of like if someone beat Bolt in the last in the qualifying series by a point bolt doesn't get to go to the next olympics mm. and that's kind of like the scenario in windsurfing um yeah, yeah. and i just don't know if i could be number two no and he said it must have sold us as well to spend so much time into it and then to come so close and then just basically be a training partner and that's all you get out of it is uh if you tell them they've been quite a good example back in tw- was it tw- i think it was 2012 yeah and you had chris hoy and um what's his name jason kenny uh so they're both cyclists i can't remember i can't remember if it was for the men's sprints or for the team or the kieran i think it might be one of the major sprinting events anyway in the men's side of the draw and you had chris hoy who had success at the last two olympics was the poster boy of british cycling i think at the time he might have been the most decorated olympian or was in line to be the most decorated olympian sort of thing and he had the new boy on the block in Jason Kenny, who was obviously, I think he was like one of the best sprinters in the world, but obviously he could only bring one to the Olympics. And it was like, do you bring the king of British cycling, the man on the posters, man everyone wants to see, or do you bring the guy who might have technically been faster that season? But it was like, it's not much in it. The two best cyclists in the world, but when only one of them can go, it just seems so, it does seem really crazy. And then you start, do you pick on form? Do you pick on who puts more bums on seats? Is it the better showman? Is it the better racer? It's just, it does become very complicated. And it's interesting, yeah, when you see people who, you know, you think they're basically just above average, but they come from a really small country and they can compete. But on the other hand, you go, isn't it great to have a, 
a ceremonious sport like the Olympics where you got so much such diversity and so many people from around the world and people who grow up in countries haven't got swimming pools but they can somehow become Olympic swimmers and so there are, I mean, there are benefits to both sides for sure and that's actually a, a really fascinating conversation but let, let's get on to uh, the injury side of things so we're going to talk about concussion in a minute but have you had any other injuries along the along the path? Um, so I was like kind of when I stopped windsurfing and then started again I kind of went down the route of like freestyle and I got really into the freestyle and was really really enjoying it and I spent a couple of winters um, training in the Caribbean which was really tough um, as I'm sure you can understand and Mm. (laughs) um, I spent so long trying to learn a move called a flacker and basically you jump with the board and the sail and you spin 360 degrees in like through the wind um and the same movement of like rolling the like trying to jump the board and roll you kind of push down and then jump um and as you jump you have to rotate the board and the sail at the same time so it's a lot of load through your front foot because it's like strapped to the board as well um and that movement basically gave me a stress fracture in my foot and the first time I did it I also like um almost pulled the tendon off the bone so it wasn't much fun um so I did that and then next winter I went back out did like the same kind of thing and it was kind of like the same overload injury where I hadn't really built up enough strength I'd been at uni for a term and then went straight out into a training camp trained for six weeks came home with stress fracture so that was kind of like the end of my freestyle career because unless I went and moved somewhere where I could actually like train consistently I worked out I was just going to keep breaking bones um, with stress fractures like there was different tendons different bones that kept on like niggling and slalom was always something through uni that I could kind of stick with um, whereas freestyle I think you just see so many people hurting themselves and yeah so I uh, I broke my foot twice freestyling I've had a bad back since I was 13 um, I had a growing condition called Sherman's which kind of slightly changes the shape of your vertebrae okay. um, and my mum's a physio so I spent my entire childhood slunt like being a slouchy teenager and being told to sit up straight little did we know that the reason that I was being a slouchy cheat slouchy teenager was because actually the vertebrae in my back were growing rounded um so we kind of worked, eventually found that out and that's something that I just have to live with and coupled with another like autoimmune disease that just kind of makes my back flare up like sporadically um so I can be like crippling pain one day and like not able to walk and then the next day I'll be absolutely fine Um, and that's something that they can't really diagnose apart from we think we might know what it is but the only Mm. way to diagnose it is to put me on to like immunosuppressant drugs and if they help that kind of goes oh well it might be this but I don't really feel like that's something I really want to go down Um, so that's just something I have to kind of live with and hope that it doesn't happen in the middle of an event Um, and we're working on a principle of if I'm as strong as I can physically be and as healthy as I can physically be, then hopefully it's going to happen less. Um, 
and then in October I had a crash and I they think I chipped a bit of the bone off the end of my shoulder um, but I just kind of carried on kind of took three days off and then was like it'll be fine and then just kind of couldn't really move my arm above like 90 degrees for a while but it's fine now I can I can put my arm above my head again um, but yeah it was too windy and it was too much fun I just kind of went through the pain and kind of was like, ah, it'll be all right. And yeah, I'd still say it, it niggles kind of every, every time I put my arm above my head, but it's kind of something I'm just living with. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I, I don't want to make light of, um, it was obviously quite a serious injury for you, but there is something always funny about um, when you can just beat mum logic with science and, and medicine. I always love that when it's like, ah, oh, I remember like it was always one growing up when um they always said, Oh, you gotta make your bed. You gotta make your bed. And I remember reading like an article somewhere that said, um, not making your bed is better because microbes really enjoy the warm environment created when you when you tuck the bed in. And it's like a real scientific journal. It's like it was like the the American Journal of Medicine, like a proper pucker one, not like some made up journal. And they were saying, Yeah, like bacteria love to be in like an anaerobic environment. So if you if you tuck it all in they they grow faster so you're more likely to get bacteria and fungi and stuff in your in your bed and it's much better it's much worse for you long term because if you leave your bed untucked there's much more wind circulation so you actually are doing a better job at destroying the bacteria so i love when you do that and you just like you can shoot your mum down she wants to make you some serious serious mum logic and you can shoot her down with some facts i love that and there is something like if only had like a condition that would like prove that your face wouldn't stay like that if you if the wind changed direction would be fantastic and you shot it down there which is great um but yeah that, all, that autoimmune thing's interesting though um do you so how how do you go about trying to manage that on a day-to-day basis or is it just a bit of potluck sort of thing? we've we're trying to work it out still so it's kind of been flaring up a lot in the last so since the concussion a year and just over a year ago it's been the worst it's ever been and we'll come to the concussion but like when I had the crash I basically landed like flat on my back um I was doing like 35 miles an hour at the time so it's kind of like going through a car crash um and being hit by a car um so that wasn't great for my back because I literally landed like flat on it um Mm. So, and like when you hit water at speed, it's basically like hitting concrete. Yeah. Um, so that kind of flared it up. And then we've worked out like there's a few triggers, like stress definitely makes a difference. Um, not sleeping enough, not eating healthily. Like, so when I'm stressed and then I eat junk food and then I get into kind of a downward spiral, it then also triggers my back. And then I get into a further downward spiral because I'm now worried about that. So I think in the last kind of few months we've worked out like that there's nothing like physically wrong and they're not saying that there's no pain but they're saying that mechanically I'm not doing myself any damage um which has been a real like relief because if you're in that much pain that you can't stand up and like I'm waking up like it's not happened so much in the last kind of six weeks but I probably spent the best part of nearly a year waking up at between three and four in the morning for an hour every morning in like 
eight out of 10 back pain, um, some days not being able to kind of move very well. So when you're in that kind of position, it feels like there must be something wrong. And then if you go training on that, what are you doing? Like the last thing I want is to not be able to walk by the time I'm 30 because I've screwed my back up. So, but yeah, we've, we've had loads of scans. They've run quite a lot of tests and they don't think that I'm doing myself any damage. Um, Nothing's got worse. So like comparing the MRI scans a year down the line, nothing looks any different, Um, which is really good. Um, That even though I'm in a lot of pain, there's nothing, nothing changing with the amount of windsurfing I'm doing. And I can put it through a lot without anything mechanically getting worse. So even though we don't know how to fix it and we don't know how to treat it because painkillers don't really do much, like anti-inflammatories don't really do much. Um, The only thing that kind of helps is some nerve drugs. So yeah, like there's a lot of things that I could get worried about, but the fact that I know that I'm not doing myself any more damage mechanically is kind of like, get on with it. Yeah, no, I think that's um, I think that's a really good point. Actually, we actually first, I'm just going to say I love the fact we keep saying concussions coming up later on. So I love the idea of someone just tuning into this podcast who just loves concussions. And they've been sat there the whole time, and I can't wait to talk about concussions. And every time it comes up, we go, "No, we're going to save it for later on." Just un- annoyingly teasing them about yeah. the concussions, but they, the concussions are coming up, but not right now. Um, so the that, that, that injury thing and the idea about you're being quite content because you know you're not doing any long-term harm or you don't think you are mechanically is interesting because that, that's the worst bit sometimes. Like, so for, for me, obviously, this whole, the whole inspiration behind these interviews is my hip problem. And obviously, I don't know about the long-term problems, but I don't... It's, and I think it, that makes them so much harder because I can play through pain and I have done for the last four years, but it's knowing when you can push yourself and when the sensible decision is to take a step back because you don't want to regret not doing something um, because you're trying to preserve yourself, but equally you don't want to regret doing it if it ends up causing a lot more harm in the long term. And I also can really sympathize with that idea about how for you the stuff comes and goes. And that's been so frustrating because I said I've, so I don't know when this episode will go out and how that will fit in the chronology of my um, my personal injury story, but I've just had some injections into my hip this week, which was a strange feeling. Um, much more painful than I thought it'd be. But yeah, I was getting sort of steroids injected straight into the into that joint space, and yeah. it's like it's annoying because the day the week before the steroid injections, the doctor had told me that obviously in theory, the injection to make you feel a lot better. So, so in my head, that made me think, right, that only makes sense if it's in pain beforehand. If I walk in feeling fine, they inject me and I walk out again, it's pretty pointless as a diagnostic test because I felt fine before. So the only way for that really to work was for me to absolutely batter my hip. So I spent like three or four days doing every single thing you can think of that I knew would make it worse. So... I was doing like super deep squats, like bum to floor squats. 
I was I got the rugby ball out. I was doing kicking practice at the post because I know that helps make it worse. Um, I was doing a little bit of like squash against the wall. I got the boxing gloves out. Every movement I could think of that I'd put maximum strain through my left hip um, to the point when it really hurt the day before the, <laughs> the day before the procedure. Woke up day of the procedure and I felt absolutely perfect. I've never felt better. So I had to go to the hospital, practically skip through the doors, whistling, happy as Larry, go into theatre. The doctor says, how do you feel today? And I had to say, you know, I feel great. He injected me. How do you feel? Feel great. Uh, gone home. And actually now it hurts a lot more because of the needle being in my, in my body. But it just, it's just so frustrating because I really wanted to be in lots of pain. I really wanted to, like, to limp in there on crutches and be like, you know, the leper going to Jesus in the temple or whatever story it is in the New Testament and just say, cure me. And then you know it happens. But to, to feel fine one day and bad the next day, I could feel terrible next week. And I wouldn't know if it was due to the injections or if it was due to the other problem or whether it was a fact I worked it too hard the week before. You never know because it comes and goes. And it, it has it, in my case, has it come and gone because I'm trying this new diet, which is more anti-inflammatory than other diets? Has it has the pain gone away because I've rested it more? Has it gone away because I've strengthened it more? Or has it gone away just because it's a coincidence and it would have gone away anyway at this time? So it's so frustrating not having those answers. Yeah, I think I'm in like the exact same position where I just don't know what it is that's causing it. And like we've tried all sorts and we just can't pin it down as to like what's making it worse. And like there's certain things I know are making it worse. But when the days happen where you're like for you where you can't walk or like. And you just don't know what it is that you did the day before or two days before that's changing it. It feels really hard to be kind of going like they offered me the same with like the injections into my back. And I was like, but some days I'm completely pain free. So if those, and like now by coincidence, I've had like almost a month, not pain-free, but I'm not waking up at night in the, to like the same degree. Um, so it's kind of like, well, two months ago, we said, if in six weeks time, it's not better, let's have an injection. And only two weeks, like the last two weeks of those six weeks, suddenly I turn, turned a corner. So like I could be having injections into my back, like steroid injections into the nerves or actually just by complete coincidence, it's, it's better. And it's dealing with that's really hard as to like, you never know where you stand and you never know when it's going to get better or worse, but yeah, there's some really good painkillers out there. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm a painkiller phobe. I'm not a big fan of taking medication when I can avoid it. Um, I'm that classic uh, person who just goes, no, I don't care how much pain I'm in. I'm not going to take them to my own, very much to my own detriment. Um, and, and yeah, I think it's interesting. So from my point of view as a, as an amateur athlete in the old school sense of the word, so I've got no, like, I don't have to worry about sponsors or finances or elite competition. But just for me thinking about doing a triathlon this summer or maybe running a, a marathon or thinking about the start of my next hockey season and these are all relatively small goals of mine but I don't know say say the marathon say I'm doing a marathon in July for example um, I could wake up on the day of the marathon in agony 
um, not being able to run. I could wake up feeling 100% and feel fantastic. So it's very hard to plan anything. And if you then extrapolate that up to your level where you're thinking, I could wake up on the day of one of these world champ events and be in terrible state and I can't compete. I could feel great. Um, and then you're, you must have to think about sponsors and um, clients and work and all these elements of your professional sporting career and how important it is that you that you're fit and it's very hard to know where you're going to be at what stage yeah I think one of the things that's scaring me the most going into the season is I know that one of the triggers for my back is sitting down for so long mm-hmm. um, and we've got like three or four events this season actually all the events this season require me to sit down for the best part of 12 hours two days before the event either that's flying long haul to South Korea, Sri Lanka, New Caledonia, um, or driving to the European events, is that I know that if I sit at my desk and work and do like a proper like 10 hour shift at my desk, my back is really, really bad. And so like, I think one of the things I've managed to eliminate this year is I haven't really traveled. Um, Well, I haven't traveled at all. and my back's got better. So as I start to move again and like travel the world and fly or drive, because I can sometimes drive like two or three days in a row for 12 hours, just trying to get to somewhere in Europe. Um, and that kind of whole thing is like how to balance the travel with like maintaining that my back's going to be all right for the event. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, yeah, well, I'm sure it will be. And I'll be interested to see how that goes. Um, right, the time has come to finally discuss concussion, which I'm sure all those big concussion fans can't wait for this. So uh, just tell us a bit about the background as to, so you mentioned roughly how that concussion occurred, but give us more information about how that concussion happened, perhaps the events that preceded it and the, prevent, the events that came afterwards. So I think... The, the key thing that happened, well, the key reason that like the concussion got so bad was we think that I had on average three to five concussions a week for six weeks um, without realizing. So when we went out to Portugal, I was like, we were flitting between like Southern Portugal and Southern Spain um, all of last winter. So I was out there from like the start of December I took the last couple of weeks off uni, drove down there um, and we were training a lot on the foil, which for those of you that don't know, is like you're flying about a meter above the water doing between 20 to 30 miles an hour. Um, And I've come from a racing background. I like going fast. I like pushing the boundaries. Um, And I've not really done much foiling before but the equipment that I had was very much like race specific. And I don't know if there's a a good way of describing, like a comparable way of describing it, but basically I was an absolute beginner again, but on like world champion level equipment. Mm -hmm. So these, like these foils go fast and you crash hard because you're going way faster than your skill level. Um, So I was going fast and I was doing really well in training, but at the same time, 
when I crashed, I crashed really hard. And like you wear an impact vest, you wear a helmet. Um, but we worked out that that wasn't really protecting me because it was the impact of the whiplash. So yeah, we were training foil two or three times a week and I'd have at least one big crash per session. So in that crash, basically like the board flies out of the water and then you, you have like a harness around your middle. So that, and that kind of half attaches you to the sail. Um, you've got like lines and they like do unhook. So it's not like you're like permanently fixed, but you like, if the sail like gets overpowered and pulls you forwards, then you basically go over the handlebars and it's like slamming the brakes on on a bike and you literally just go straight over the top um but at like 25 miles an hour um and then you you have the impact like as you hit the water and it's the impact that as i hit the water that was giving me whiplash um so i spent my whole winter being dizzy being really tired and kind of having neck pain but i thought i was like dizzy because I have like a really big track record with ear infections so I thought I was just getting like repeat ear, ear infections didn't really think anything of it I was like I've been here done that before and just kind of didn't really think anything of it kind of would take the odd day off training if it was really bad but just cracked on um I thought I was really tired because I was trying to do a degree and trying to train and so I was just like you're going to be tired, get used to it. You've done it for the last three years. You've been like continuously tired for three years, get on with it. And I was kind of also going down the lines of like, just being probably a bit dehydrated as well. We're training three or four hours a day, some days. So you're spending a lot of time on the water, not taking on any fluids, probably just a bit dehydrated. That was kind of where I thought the headaches were coming from. Um, so I just cracked on and at the end of January, I had a really big crash um, on the slalom kit. So I was going a bit faster. Everything just kind of lifted up. And then I just got whipped around the front. And that's when I landed like flat on my back. And I sailed straight in after that crash. Like kind of had that like, you have some crashes sometimes where you go, right, I've still got my arms. I can still move my fingers. Still got my legs. I can still move my toes. Cool, nothing's broken. Mm -hmm. oh my kit's also okay cool result you're good I kind of got up from that went and did another run and then was like nah you're not okay sailed into the beach and kind of called it a day um and then the next day my back was really sore and it was kind of my back that limited me more than anything um so I just I only had like two weeks left of the training camp so I kind of went on with it kind of did a little bit of training here and there but didn't really do very much and then came back to the UK mid-February and went back to uni, was kind of like, had that kind of mentality of it's your final year. You're about to have to, like, by the end of February, you're going to have to, like, get your ass in gear and kind of get on to uni work. But you've kind of got two weeks where you can just kind of have a bit of fun. So I went out a bit, kind of did that typical student stuff. Yeah. So again, it was just kind of like have two weeks off just the season's not starting like chill out a bit go and be a student for two weeks so I had two weeks off training and I felt worse for it and that was kind of quite a big red flag it was like 
yes, I was going out, but I was also getting like 12 hours sleep every night. I was still, I was going dizzy in lectures. So I was like sat in lectures and I could just like, couldn't focus and just couldn't make my eyes focus. Um, and yeah, so then I went home, saw a specialist and they kind of put the whole thing together and I was getting pain in my foot, like really random pains in my foot, like going back to the whole being absolutely fine to like, can't walk. It was like the extremes again. And like, it was, so I was getting back pain. I was getting foot pain. I was getting headaches and dizziness. And the doctor that I saw is like a specialist up at uh, Manchester City. Um, mm. And he works at the EIS up there. And he's a friend of mum's through work. So I saw John. And we ended up having like an hour and a half appointment and he went through everything and he turned around at the end and was like, either you've got a small brain tumor on your ear canal or you've got concussion. And basically we're going to scan you head to toe. And I spent two and a half hours in an MRI scanner and they wow. scanned pretty much every part of my body and concluded that there was actually like, at the moment when they scanned my foot, which was something that I was actually quite happy about, I was in pain. Um, so like they scanned my foot. There was like mechanically nothing wrong with it. They scanned my back. And apart from like the Sherman's issues, there was nothing wrong with it. They did a full brain scan, nothing on the brain scan. So yeah, all of that came back clean, which was a massive relief. But at the same time, we still didn't really know what was wrong with me. And John went through it all again and was like, well, if you add up the number of times you crashed, we'd have taken you off training for six weeks after the first crash. And you went and did that like every week for six weeks, probably another 20 times at least on top of the initial crash. Yeah. So am I surprised that you've got concussion? No. Um, and that was kind of, yeah, six weeks after I was still, couldn't stand on one leg, couldn't read, couldn't like, it was loads of things that were just massive kind of issues. Um, and yeah, that's at that point, he said, take a month off. And at that point I was kind of gearing up towards the season. Like our first event was middle of April and this is start of March. So I'm like, it's five weeks until the season starts. And we've got three World Cups back to back. And John was like, well, if you rest properly for a month, you should be able to get, like, you should be fit for the first World Cup. And this is before we realised that everything was going to be cancelled with COVID. Um, so I did everything he said, and I rested completely. And a month down the line, I was in the exact same, if not worse place, still. Um, and we just had to keep taking everything really, really slowly. Um, and I think it was kind of like, probably middle of April that I started to kind of feel, no, it wasn't, it was around, it's probably the 10th of May-ish um, because it was all around when my dad's birthday was. And yeah, my mum, started doing a concussion course because she, like she's interested in it from a medical side mm -hmm. and she found out that like 
a lot of the dizziness that I was still having could be related to my eyes um, and that my eyes have actually like stopped tracking properly. So I'm basically going cross-eyed all the time. So they took my glasses and put like tape over like the middle bits of my glasses and like covered all of the like middle bits in here. And yeah, from that, I could then suddenly, I wasn't dizzy and it was insane. So I walked around like that for 10 days and looked very strange. And then I wasn't dizzy at all. And then I started being able to like walk on a treadmill because being able to walk outside, you've got so many like visual stimuli that that was still like brain overload. So luckily where we were living, we had a treadmill. So my fitness, kind of getting my fitness back started on a spin bike and a treadmill because they didn't require any visual. Um, And anything that required me to balance or kind of do anything with my eyes was a real challenge. But like anything where I was just locked in and I could push myself really, really hard on the bike with no issues and that's when we worked out that it was actually like a major problem with my eyes um so fast forward another month i saw another specialist because we kind of came out of lockdown it was a bit safer to go see people in the hospital and basically i shook your eyeballs are basically made up of jelly and i shook my eyeballs so hard that the jelly came off the back of my eyeballs um and he described it as like it's like millions of pieces of scaffolding built up it's like the layers of your eyeball and I could I was saying I could still see stars kind of thing and basically what I could see was like bits of my eyeball floating in my eye Um, and I still get it every now and again and there's nothing you can do about it Um, and actually it's completely fine you just have to learn to look through it but that was kind of that was kind of where I finished with the concussion was once I worked out that that was okay, then everything was all right. But that was kind of the middle of June. So yeah, it was like January to June. It's pretty long. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, pretty grim actually, the old eyeball thing. <laughs> um, so where are we now then? So, so at the moment, would you, are you a hundred percent over it? 90% over it? Where'd you say you are now? I would say I'm, well, until this week, I went mountain biking and went down a really like bumpy trail and then got to the bottom and was like, oh, I can see stars again. And that was like the first time that's happened since had a November time. Um, So yeah, I I would have said I was 100%. Um, I'd say I'm probably 95%. Um, But yeah, I just have to be kind of careful. I like track my symptoms. So like one of the moves I've been learning a lot recently is like forward, like front flips, Mm -hmm. uh, forward loops. And sometimes you get a crash where you land on your head or you land on your back. And I know straight away, like I just need to go in and not push it any further. And then there's a thing called a scat five, which is like a concussion symptom tracker. And I just go through that and kind of basically have to get back to zero symptoms before I'm allowed back on the water. So I just kind of police it myself now. Okay, yeah, I see. And, and it kind of is concussions a very interesting topic. And 
I think one of the things that makes it quite interesting from my point of view is you clearly had it very severe. I think anyone who heard that description and doesn't describe it as severe would be a uh, be very much mistaken but i've just given it a little look on the old uh the internet here and i've come to the british medical journal page and um the definition they use is very vague so it says this is sports related concussion or src is a traumatic brain injury that is defined as a complex pathophysiological process affecting the brain which is induced by biomechanical forces with several common features that help define its nature. That's the definition they use, which is incredibly vague. It basically means something has happened to the brain. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, which, which, is, which is why I suppose it has such a wide range of presentations. And I think part of that is also because I think people are quite keen to over... Um, diagnose it in order to try and prevent other issues so it's quite a safe diagnosis if someone has hit the head it's much easier to say oh you might have you might have concussion or you probably got a concussion or you're concussed than to say oh you're fine because it's, it's a safer option to say you might have an issue um, but pretty much everyone who has any sort of blow to the head is almost automatically defined as having concussion now, I know that myself because I've had concussion technically, you know, two or three, well, two or three times I've had it sort of diagnosed as having concussion. But it's always been like, oh, you know, take a week off from rugby or hockey or whatever sport it is, and then you should be fine. Um, and my symptoms have always been, oh, I've got a headache. Then you go, well, I've got a headache, maybe a little bit dizzy, but you go, you know, I just got hit in the head by a hockey ball. Of course, I've got a headache. It doesn't mean necessarily there's a, there's a brain issue there. Um, and I think where, where that's important is when we look at people like you, um, you've had the full blown shebang of, uh, of concussion. Um, and it's, it's tricky when, you know, pretty much everyone who's played contact sport has had a concussion probably like in terms of how they define it, but it's such an overarching definition that it's almost, it almost cheapens your injury many ways or makes it seem less severe because everyone's had one everyone's had concussion whereas you've you've had the proper the proper textbook sort of concussion if you see what i mean yeah i think so my experience of concussion is also very very different to my brother's experience of concussion um so it seems to be something that kind of runs in the family um it's actually he's he's had it way worse than i have so <laughs> half the battle with actually having the concussion diagnosed for me was I never even considered it could be an option because the symptoms that I saw with my brother so like when my brothers had concussion he was always knocked out I was never knocked out mm -hmm. so and like I never clocked that I'd actually ever hit my head on anything um now on reflection obviously I was hitting my head on the water really hard but that I do that regularly like it's just something that I did like, unfortunately it happens in windsurfing and you kind of get used to it. And since I was like 12, you start going fast, you start hitting your head on the water. And I've hit my head so many times that it's never something I've considered. So I think, yeah, and my brother's display of concussion was very much down the lines of he got knocked out, 
he had amnesia he had blackout like he has no recollection of a lot of his life now of like the early days and like a period when he was at school because he had like a really really major concussion so he had that at the same time as like another family friend had a concussion from playing lacrosse um, over in Canada and Ty as well like he couldn't he was had like the complete amnesia thing as well so like watching like how those guys had had concussion I couldn't I I was like well I haven't been hit in the head so I haven't got concussion um and I think it just shows like how wide it can be and how careful you have to be with it because I assumed that the dizziness that I had was an ear infection when in fact it was something completely different and it was something that because I continued it got a lot worse so I think like I know that people play it really safe by saying like oh you've got concussion take a week off but even having that like week off is enough to give your brain time to like chill out um, and get, yeah. get the rest that it needs because if you carry on like I did that's how it got so much worse and yeah. it was that like repeat like constant battering that made it so much worse and like yeah yeah i mean it's interesting because you you gave a a good obviously you, you explained it really well how you had that concussion and how you made it worse but probably windsurfing is not a sport you automatically associate with concussions probably even though you said it makes perfect sense when you think you said you make an impact with the water and you're and as you mentioned the psychopathic nature of the of those uh slalom events earlier on but um you do kind of if i think concussion i straight away think boxing rugby um potentially things like hockey as well where you're getting uh potentially hitting the head with stuff and i think i think rugby is that real big one and rugby and american football have made massive strides in how they assess concussions nowadays uh, but perhaps if you'd have had the similar impact in rugby it probably would have been immediately recognized or not even recognized just they're just protocols in place so if you take a head knock um or, or pretty much nowadays any sort of big impact that could potentially include the head you go off for an assessment um and if you don't pass that assessment you go through the returning to pro as you mentioned before the returning to play protocols taking a week maybe two weeks off minimum getting back into it if you've had so many in the same year you take a prolonged period of leave um if you have so many over multiple years you might have to retire early from the sport and so on so those protocols are really well in place but a sport like yours I said it's, it's probably not on the forefront of everyone's minds concussions which is why it's so easy to be missed yeah like I heard a podcast over the summer with like two of the top like wave sailors and they were like oh yeah no like some days you just have to sit in a dark room like because they were training double forward flips so like what I've been doing but like the next level where you jump way higher and then you get like a real whip on the second loop um and they were saying like some days they come in off the water and they can't do anything they can't look at a screen they can't they just need to go and sit in a dark room and I was like that shouldn't be like how it is but because there's no real like sports science support or anything like that in windsurfing like I'm really lucky to have the support that I do through my mum, but 
so many of the athletes can't even afford like proper physiotherapy so yeah they would probably just kind of go I'll be all right and it's just kind of worrying almost as to like what's the long-term effect because we know what the long-term effect is in rugby and American football but what's the long-term effect of kind of what we're doing so yeah I mean I, I suppose the way a lot of these things work is one sport pioneers something and then it filters down into other sports so I mean rugby actually got a well rugby and American football have worked quite closely together but the protocols that were done in those sports have slowly filtered the way down potentially into football you mentioned football potentially having um, head injury replacements coming in having head injury assessments becoming mandatory potentially independent doctors all the things which rugby and American football have already got um, they'll find their way into football and from football potentially into other team sports potentially into all sport particularly all sort of olympic and regulated sports might well have that mm. independent doctor strategy um, and obviously the research that comes from these more mainstream sports will hopefully eventually dictate protocols in the minority sports as well um, but that's something that always happens and it always takes a while to to really see the fruit of that okay so i'm going to move on actually just because i'm a little bit cautious of time and this is such a can of worms we could be here all day so i uh, just got a few topics to finish with really so first of all um tell us a little bit about what you do when you're not on the board um i well because windsurfing's not a funded sport in the way that i do it um you either get money through sponsorship or you have to work so i spend most of my day at the minute sat behind a desk um i do a lot of social media work and marketing kind of work um so i work for some of my sponsors doing their social media um which is really cool and the bonus of kind of social media and like some of the other stuff i do is web design is you can do it from a computer anywhere in the world so i think that's how i spend most of my day and then when i'm not on the water training i have a really good snc coach who sets me programs so i try and do like two strength sessions a week and then depending on what else I'm doing, whether I'm going mountain biking or windsurfing, because mountain biking is way more fun than doing conditioning sessions. So, yeah, I either go out on the water. If I've got a really heavy week windsurfing, I'll maybe do one strength session and do it really slowly. Um, if I've got a light week like this week, two or three strength sessions plus some conditioning sessions. Um, it really varies depending on how windy it is. Yeah, yeah, it's obviously a sport where you're very tied down to the weather conditions. And I mean, we've never had to cancel a hockey or rugby session because it was too windy outside. So it's, uh, it's, it's interesting how you have to really adapt to the conditions. What did you find easier, being a student athlete or being an athlete in a working world? Um, probably being a student athlete because there's way less responsibility. Um, I was kind of, once you kind of factor in like your student loan, um, I was on a really good scholarship at Bath. We had like extra scholarship support as well. So I had quite a lot of funding secured by just going to uni. Um, so I didn't have to, like, I was still working, but like, I didn't have to work as much and it didn't work, didn't like not doing the work that I needed to do. Um, didn't mean that I didn't, I couldn't pay rent or put food on the table. 
Whereas now if I don't work, that's kind of like, it, it makes it a bit trickier. So yeah. I think, yeah, being, I had a really good time as a student athlete, um, both were awesome. And because of like the scholarship stuff, I went away a lot. I didn't really spend much time at uni. Um, so I got to spend time in the Caribbean, South Africa, Morocco, uh, Spain. I did some, some of the world tour stuff in Portugal. I had a really good time and got to travel a lot. Um, so I think my introduction to the working world has been a bit different because I haven't yet had that opportunity to kind of travel and work um, and kind of have the fun side of it. It's just yeah. been like work, winter, work, winter. It's cold. It's windy, but it's cold. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm excited to be able to kind of go on the road again and have the fun side of it. Yeah, no, I think that's, um, that can be said for all of us, perhaps not quite as exotic as your lifestyle, but um, out and about would be nice for sure. Um, so one, one final sort of plans question before we go on to any other business, which is, I noticed in one of your interviews that you, you briefly were involved in hockey um, and actually to much more successful level than you might assume. So you got right up towards England age group level stuff. Um, was that an easy decision for you to stick with windsurfing um, or were you at all swayed towards sort of the more hockey lifestyle? Um, so this is kind of what I wanted to talk about maybe in the any other business section, but like... Ah, we'll save it then. Someone, we'll save it. We'll, save it well no, so like the hockey and windsurfing, like the divide between the two was kind of just because you have to doesn't, or just because you can doesn't mean you have to. Mm -hmm. and that was something that was said to me a lot when I was playing hockey was I was I yeah I played up to England under 17s and hockey was great and it was kind of filled the void when I couldn't windsurf as much the whole reason I started playing hockey was because I stopped windsurfing and we thought it would be something social for me to do keep active and then I got quite competitive so I kind of I like to be the best at everything I can do and it's something I'm working really hard at the minute to not be quite so competitive in some areas of my life but like everything I've tried I've always wanted to be the best yeah. so as soon as I picked up a hockey stick I kind of wanted to be the best and that to me was getting to England age groups um, and then just as I was starting to go through the England trials that's when I started windsurfing again and I realized that actually windsurfing was my one true love and hockey I just kind of did to go through the processes um and I I got so far in hockey because I always wanted to be the best but I never really enjoyed it that much but I did it because I could um so yeah I I got my cap I got three caps I capped in the side I scored a goal it's kind of like right box ticked You've done everything you need to do in hockey. And that's when I went back to windsurfing. Um, okay. And I just loved windsurfing so much more. It's like, like, it's the freedom and I'm in control. And that is something that I've always enjoyed is kind of being the one that's in charge of what I'm doing. And maybe that's why I didn't get on with the Olympic program so well as well, because someone's telling you what to do. And if you ask my mum, I've always been really stubborn and mum has always said like if she wants me to do something she has to tell me the opposite to get me mm -hmm. to actually do it 
So she has to work out what she wants me, to, what she wants the result to be, tell me to do the opposite thing, and then I'll do what she wants me to do. And that's been like since I was a little kid. So I like to be, I like to make my own decisions. And hockey, you're relying on too many other people. And I think I'm quite an individual. So yeah, hockey, hockey was fun while I was at school, but yeah, it was never something, I don't know. It just, I went to uni trials and I was in the middle of Freshers' Week and I was enjoying Freshers' Week. And I played well at trials and they said like, we want you to come play ones, but we need you to kind of commit to way more. And I was like, actually, I just want to play social hockey. I want to play threes or fours, have some fun. And they said no. So I was like, right, I'm not playing hockey. And literally the last time I touched a hockey stick was in at Freshers Trials. All right. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's, um, I suppose that really speaks to a point we discussed a few times in this series, the idea of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. And I think in, I mean, the intrinsic for you will be the love of your sport and windsurfing and just enjoying doing it whereas extrinsically it'd be very easy if you'd be motivated by hockey probably offered more extrinsic motivation perhaps um i mean neither of them are going to get you lots of riches necessarily but um hockey probably you had a chance to win olympic potentially olympic medals or at least olympic caps um you know, you could have finished your career with multiple England appearances or goals or records, etc., in a very organised sport, whereas you chose to go down a sport which was purely more for love, even though you still can be professional, you can still win world titles, of course, but it's probably out of the two, I'd say hockey offered the much more classic extrinsic motivation. Yeah, I think windsurfing, I, I windsurf because I love it and I know it's never going to make me and this is why I work three jobs to be able to continue to do the tour mm. is I will do everything I can to make sure I can still windsurf. And in all the jobs that I'm doing, the one thing that is really important is that I still have the flexibility to windsurf and I will do pretty much everything I can to make sure that I'm on the water, not because it's training, but because I love being on the water and that's my happy place. And I'm a competitive person, so naturally I want to compete. But for me, being a professional windsurfer is more than just competing. It's actually the lifestyle of being able to windsurf every day. And that's like almost like my favorite thing about it is like every time it's windy, I can windsurf. And I think that's the goal instead of win like, yes, winning world titles is also like they're kind of on a par like just being able to windsurf every day I'd still be pretty happy if that was all I could do yeah well that's that's really nice to hear and I think that's that's a real key for any sport and I suppose life in general I mean that's a really nice way to finish but um I will give the opportunity if you've got any other any other business to deal with I think it's it's just that kind of thing that I think there's so many people, whether it's academic, sporting, whatever, get pushed to do things because they're capable of doing them. And for me, it's happened a few times in kind of academics and hockey where people have said, like, you should do this. Because, and like, because academically, I could have gone down like the Oxbridge route. 
and at school I was being pushed down that route really really hard and that wasn't making me happy and then the same with hockey was like hockey I was good at it but it didn't really make me happy and I think something that's just I've learned and maybe kind of the one thing that I've really really learned through sport is just because you can do something doesn't mean you have to and yeah doing the things that make you happy make if you can make it so much better yeah yeah no i uh definitely agree with that um i feel like i'd probably be the sort of person though who would probably um unintentionally try and force you down the wrong path because i feel i feel sometimes when sometimes people try to live through other people so if you don't have the natural you know if you're not as good a hockey player as sarah jackson and you wish you could be in her shoes perhaps so you you inadvertently try and encourage them to do that because you know you can do it yourself if that kind of makes sense yeah and I think well so like my parents both did really really well at sport but both of them had sport taken away from them and I think that's been like one of my biggest inspirations is like I have this opportunity so I need to pursue it um and they've been really really supportive in that but yeah I think part of me is like just because you can doesn't mean you have to but at the same time I have this opportunity, so I need to take it. And this is the one that I love. This is what, this is the one thing that I absolutely love. So I want to make the most of it. Well, great. And I wish you all the luck for that. Um, Obviously another big year, hopefully post COVID when you can go out and get on that world tour, perhaps get yourself one step closer to that world championship and um, all the riches that can come with that. So uh, best of luck for that. Uh, best of luck for everything that comes in your future and I'll be following your journey closely thanks for coming on thank you very much I really enjoyed that chat Sarah was a lot of fun another one of those guests who I'd love to meet up with some point post lockdown and really sort of find out more about her and sort of have that quite organic chat that isn't sort of so quite so formal as today's was uh, so many talking points we can go into from the news local elections here in london to decide the new london mayor uh, the lions tour team being announced and of course protests and football but unfortunately not enough time this week to delve into all of it i will say though please check out that social media if you haven't already which is at hips underscore and underscore dips with a z tell your friends and families well to check it out Loads more details on there about Sarah and all of my previous guests. But please remember to stay fun, stay aware, and as always, most importantly, stay safe. Stay safe.